Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, I'll be gone for two weeks. Uh... A team of us, uh, myself included, of about 17 of us, actually went to a country named Guatemala in Central America to do some mission work. And you had some amazing speakers while we were gone. Matt uh, McCarrier, uh, who's all the way up in the balcony. Hey there, buddy. And then BJ Hyatt, uh, who you just heard from a moment ago. And yes, these are the kind of transitions with BJ, uh, not with BJ, just in general. In the church that we celebrate, there are so many transitions in the church that happen uh, across the globe, and it's not always healthy. Uh, It's not always a launching into some great God-calling moments. A lot of times, transitions happen through moral failure and difficult circumstances, conflict of issues, personality issues, those kind of things, and this is not that. And it is, you know, I got the call... I knew BJ uh, had, had thrown out a resume and was, was looking, and it's hardest to be in full-time ministry, and um, got a call, and was working on that in December, and uh, I knew the potential existed, and I got the call while we were in Guatemala, and then I'm walking down from the building of the house that we were working on, and I call him back, because my phone didn't have service, I had to use one of the other team members, Dave Wilson's, and... Uh, and I knew the potential of this was coming, but as I'm receiving the call that he accepted the position, that the Holy Spirit made it very clear, um, it was a gut punch, actually. I mean, I was celebrating this for him, but then all of a sudden I'm like, why am I feeling this way? I'm, I'm going to miss him. But then it was like, ugh, I don't like the feeling. But it's one of those bittersweet moments that... Every church goes through, uh, you read the New Testament, Paul's letters, they're constantly moving from place to place, and they're uprooting, and they're going and planting, and they're spreading the word. It's a part of the minister's life. And so we pray for you, BJ, and are excited to see you launch. I'm not going to say to greener pastors, just to other pastors, okay? Uh, But you know you always have a family here. And we love you, and, uh, and uh, we'll talk more. Uh, we're going to honor, um, honor him in a special way next week. And, and those that have transitioned over the past year, did you know we had two other staff transitions? You probably didn't. And uh, that's my fault, but you'll know about it next week as well. And we're going to celebrate uh, after our baptismal service those transitions, okay? I like, I like response. I was in Guatemala. They respond down there. The Church of God. We're part of the Church of God. The Church of God in Guatemala, we went to the Sunday service at the church, and you know, there's some people, amen, amen, oh yeah, preach it. And it was an English-speaking church, Guatemalan English-speaking church. So it worked out well, because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to understand. All right. Where do we pick up today? I've been building up for two weeks. I haven't preached for two weeks. <laughs> And it'll, it'll be short today, I promise. I've been working. 
unshaving the fat. All right. Where did that come from? Uh, oh, you. Okay. Julie's in the house, everybody. We've been doing a series on kindness being a verb. We're in a season and a year of kindness. We've been going through the fruit of the Spirit every year, and kindness is 2023. And did you know kindness can be challenged as much as the others? You don't think about kindness being challenged, but uh, until people are really pressing in on you who are irritating, you ever been, yeah, does anybody, do, do you have people that irritate you? Some of you are pointing at your spouses. Um, are, are there era, points of irritation where kindness within you is tested? See, it's, it's when a plant or a tree incurs pressure that oftentimes it grows stronger. And it learns to bear fruit under adverse circumstances. And so, like trees, we too are to produce fruit as believers in Christ, and kindness is one of those. And kindness doesn't always just come so easily. As a matter of fact, kindness, in order to truly be kindness, must often be put to the test. And how is it put to the test in your life? I've noticed whenever we do a series like this and whenever we focus on one of these words that oftentimes it becomes a prevalent part of the forefront of my experience for that year. And I've already seen within these short few weeks how kindness has been tested in my own personal life. <clears throat> and I'm oftentimes now within these past few weeks convicted about how my tendency is not to be kind. I don't know if you've experienced that or not, but my tendency is to feel irritation and frustration more readily than kindness. I don't know why, other than the tactics and the tools of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy all that God desires to build up in me. And so there are two forces, and they are not equal in opposing forces. There is a force that is God in the spiritual realm. And he is the ultimate all-powerful source for life and everything that's good. But there's another force, and it is a weaker force. But how funny is it that that weaker evil force that seeks to thwart God's will and ways in the lives of all of us tends to seem to be stronger than it really is? Well, here's what I know. Evil... Satan, the devil, cannot have any power or authority over you that you do not allow him to have. And so when you are tempted, as James says in the book of James, you shouldn't say God is tempting me because God is not tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. It's our evil desires, James says, that come and we give into when we're tempted and that leads us astray. You see, James doesn't even give the devil his due. <laughs> he says, it's your evil desires. It's our evil desires. You can't go around saying the devil made me do it. But that seemed, that this is one of the tools of the enemy is his deceptiveness to make us believe that we can't 
not do those things that we shouldn't do. Let me explain. I heard somebody say, what? How many double negatives can you do to make it a positive? Well, let me explain. The devil, Satan, will tempt you and say, you can't refrain from this. It's a compulsory thing. You just have to give in to it. We call it addiction in some circles. We call it, a, well, this is just my personality type. Get over it in other circles. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Well, God made me this way. Get over it. I just speak it like I see it. And we blast people with our mouths and with our attitudes. I just, I just can't not do this because this is who I am. And if you don't like it, then hit the road. Do you ever hear that? And maybe you don't hear that quite in the same way, but, but you've experienced it, correct? Or maybe you've been that way. See, the year of kindness isn't about you getting what you want. It's about giving what others truly need. And when we, as believers in Christ, have been called into the fold, if you will, the body of Christ, we have been called to a higher standard of living. And no, it does not come naturally. You know why it doesn't come naturally? It doesn't come naturally because we live in a world that is counter to God's kingdom. God's kingdom is so upside down to the world's standards and ways of living that when we live like citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we look weird to the rest of the world. But when we live in this world as citizens, there is a draw to what seems normal and natural but is not normal and natural. It is antithetical to everything that God stands for. And so today... I want to talk about kindness through prayer. I want to talk about kindness through prayer in the body of Christ. I want to talk about how prayer can bring healing, it can bring hope, and it can bring forgiveness of sin. And we're looking at a passage that oftentimes has been somewhat, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Conflicting within the body of Christ, or at least a portion of it has been. We like, we like to read things that make us feel good in certain portions and fit our certain theologies that maybe we were raised with, but then when something else contradicts a theology or a belief that we were raised with, we don't like that too much. But in North, at North Main Street Church of God, we like to take the whole advisory of Scripture and try to look at it within its context so that we can learn from it, be transformed by it, and become more intimate with Christ through it. And so in a moment, we're going to turn to James chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading from 13 on to the end of that chapter, which is honestly the last chapter of the letter of James. I'm going to, I found this illustration, and I actually have used it before, but I want to read it again because I think it's uh, such a cool illustration. And please help me. Uh, some things are legend, and a legend is something that has some truth in it, or has some bearing in truth, kind of an anchor in truth back in the day, but then kind of takes on its own, um, uh, its own form. Uh, this seems to be legend, so just don't take it as truth because it's anonymous. I just heard this and I've read it before. Uh, but it's, tradition states that 
When missionaries started going to Africa, to certain African regions, to do missionary work and to reach the tribal peoples, that the early converts uh, to Christianity in these African tribal nations were earnest and regular in their private devotions to God. Now think, if you were a pagan who was worshiping your own gods who didn't exist but were sacrificing any number of things, you were cannibalistic or whatever, and now you've had this radical change to believe that there's only one God, and this true God is who created you and gave you life, and it's to him you owe your allegiance, and he doesn't expect you to kill other people for him. He wants you to live in the fullness of peace, patience, kindness, all of the fruit of the Spirit and all that. So they became just as fervent in their devotion to God, Yahweh, as they were to their many gods. And so in that ferventness, it says in this tradition that they would have their own spots. Each individual would have their own spots out in the savanna or different places where they would go to pray because they took seriously prayer and praying alone in their prayer closets, not praying on the street corners like the Pharisees did in order to be seen and heard. They would actually go into the wilderness. And they would go so often and so regular that the pathways they trod were beaten down. And without saying a word, their other brothers and sisters in the faith would know when a brother or sister would actually start slipping in their faith because that path that had been so well trod and worn would become grown over eventually. And they would confront one another with love and kindness and say, brother, your path is growing over. What's the problem? Prayer is so vital to not the Christian experience, but the Christian life, that without it, there is, and dare I be so bold as to say, no Christianity. If you are not fervent in prayer to the Father, if you don't have the intimacy with him through communion in prayer, then where are you connecting with him? I could say I'm a believer in Christ all I want till I'm blue in the face, but if I never commune with him through prayer, then what's the status of my relationship? I, <clears throat> let's put it in this context. If I never talked to my wife, what would be the status of our relationship? If we never did anything beyond surface level communication, what would the status of our relationship be? Not great, would it? It wouldn't be great. But see, true communion with my wife is when we pull out all the stops and we're able to dig deep and we're able to be completely and 100% honest with each other, so much so that when we are together, as we've grown deeper in our relationship, we tend to know what the other person is thinking. We tend to move and work and function together in tandem because we've learned this fine art of moving, working, and tandem together through communion and prayer. I don't know where you are in your walk. Some of us are still infants learning to talk. And it's just coos and cas and mamas and dadas in our faith when we should be going deeper 
and closer to the heart of God. One of the often things I get as a pastor and have at the three different churches I've pastored and, and have been on staff at and uh, in, in the 20, going on 24 years of ministry is, Brandon, I don't know how to grow in my faith. I don't know how to, de- I, don't know, I don't know the voice of God. How do I know when God's speaking to me? And it's not easy, especially early on in your walk of faith. But if you've been a Christian, let's just say 10, 15, 20 years, I'm going to ask, how often do you pray? How often are you in the Word? If you're still struggling hearing the voice of God, the Word of God, I'm not talking about the audible voice like going, hey, Brandon, I need to talk to you. That's God's voice in my head, so just thought you should hear it. <laughs> um, and it's kind of a deep southern drawl. All right, let's get back. Um, I've learned the voice of God, and I've not learned it perfectly, but I've learned the voice of God by prayer, by digging into his word, and through obedience to what he lays on me. So for instance, I'll give you another, another instance on how God works and, and communicates. Has, have you ever felt impressed upon to do something? Like you just, it's almost compulsory. Like, oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. And it's out of the, it might be out of the norm for your personality or what you would normally do, but it's a good thing. And you're like, is this God? Oh, I don't know. Is it God? I don't know. And you're like, God, is this you? And, and uh, what you learn to do in this walk of faith and listening for that still small voice, when those impressions come upon you, um, There's a choice. God will never force your hand, or I should say rarely force your hand, but he will impress upon you, I need you to go pray for that person. Well, they're a complete stranger. I want you to pay for that person's meal. Well, they look just fine, like they don't need help. I need you, or I desire for you, and you fill in the blank. I'm going to guess many, if not most of you, have had an experience like that. That oftentimes is a prompting of the Holy Spirit and God speaking in that still small voice for you to be obedient. Sometimes he just does small things to test the waters to see if you're going to be obedient. You say, well, how do I know if it's God? Does it contradict his word? Well, I don't know because I don't know what his word states. Then there you're at a deficiency. You're still an infant in Christ if you haven't dug enough into the Word of God to know whether or not what you are being impressed upon to do would run contrary to what God's Word states. But once you know that and you're able to say to test whether or not this is God, you can say, okay, this doesn't contradict His Word. And sometimes you don't need to be a biblical scholar to know that if he's calling you to pay for somebody's meal or to go pray for somebody, I mean, God's word would never stop you from doing that. But there are deeper things. Those are just testing the water issues a lot of times. Because then, as you continue in this walk and you learn that still small voice with him and that intimacy that only comes through communion and prayer and study of the word, then when those moments come, you don't bat an eye. It gets to the point where it becomes such an intimate walk, just like my relationship with my wife. I know what she's thinking before she thinks it. 
I know what she would say in a given situation, even though she may not be right beside me when this thing happens. And I can, with pretty much full assurance, be able to react for the both of us in a situation where she's not there and her me as well. Is any of this making sense? I'm just making sure you're with me. Okay, because either you're honed in or you're zoned out. Okay, good enough. All right. Now, I want to talk to you about prayer, too. I've often been taught that prayer doesn't change God, it changes you. Yes, but I'm going to give a caveat. And you're probably not going to like me for this because you've been raised differently. I can show you a multitude of situations in the Bible where prayer actually changed the decision God was going to make. Now, you say, and I've heard from other scholars and pastors, well, then that means that God changes. And I would say, yes, but it is core nature does not change. The psalmist says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he doesn't change. And what the psalmist is indicating is that his very nature doesn't change. Everything he is, does, is good and will always be good. So, prayer, yes, changes the individual. It must. But it can also change God. Now, let's explain. Let me explain. What about Moses' intercession for Israel? You can look this up. Write it down somewhere. Don't take my word for it. Deuteronomy 9, 7 through 29. I'm not going to read it. You read it later. But Moses reminds the people of Israel how he prayed for God not to destroy the Israelites at Mount Sinai for rebelling against him by creating an idol made of gold to worship. And God relented and changed his mind in not destroying them. Do you remember that Moses is on the mountain? He's up there for about 40 days. The people get antsy because that's about a month and a half. They waited longer than most of us would. He's not been down in two days. Let's build a cow. We'll worship it. I mean, this is just how stupid humans are at times when it comes to the things of God. We got to have an object to worship. And so Moses' brother Aaron, they all come to him. Because, well, he's next in line to the throne, right? Or whatever. And so they come to him and they're like, Where's Moses? He's not been around, and we need something to worship. And he said, Aaron's like, I, I don't, I'm not used to this position. I'm just putting words in there. I shouldn't add to or take away from the word. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just putting myself in Aaron's shoes because he's like caught off guard. And he's like, I, I don't know. Give me your gold. <laughs> yeah, go to your, give me your jewelry, your gold jewelry and everything. So what he did is, He had the craftsmen melt down the gold that all the people brought to him, and guess what he made? A moo cow. That's what I grew up calling it. A moo cow. And then they all bowed down and worshipped it. And guess what? The noise was so loud of the celebration and the worship of this cow that it reached the top of the mountain, and of course, nothing ever evades God's attention. And God says, you know what the people are doing down there? And Moses is like, what? They're worshiping a cow. 
I, I'm paraphrasing. Look it up. I gave you the scripture reference. And you know what God says to Moses? And I can feel, as many of you probably could too, some of the frustration that God must have felt is, I raised you, cleaned you, I bought your books for school, and <laughs> do you get what I'm getting at? And you disrespect me like this? You disobey me? I mean, you are so ungrateful. Now God, keep up to this time. He has he parted a sea for them. Prior to that, how many plagues did he send upon the Egyptians? How much of God's hand did they see up to the point that they're now in the wilderness, having left Egypt in this miraculous way, and they're like, we want to worship something, make us a cow. And so God says, I'm done. I am so frustrated. They've tested my patience enough. Here's what I'm going to do. Moses, I'm going to wipe them out of existence. I, yeah, I know what I was going to do in building a nation through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I still will, except it'll be through your line. Okay? You're still connected to Abraham and the Israelites and all of that. So I'll build a great nation through you and your wife, Zephora. Okay? And what does Moses say? No, God, please don't do this. I mean, if you do, just blot my name out of the book of life too. I mean, what will the Egyptians say? That the God who did the plagues and all of these great miracles and led his own people out here into the wilderness as a nation to establish them as a people, then wipe them out? What kind of God? What, when that news gets back to Egypt... The testimony of who you are will be marred. Please don't do this. And God says, okay, but there will be consequences. And you can read in the story the consequences that incurred and with the people that they happened to. God had planned one thing, then he changed his mind, was going to wipe those people out, and through the intercession, prayer, and communion of Moses, he said, okay, fine. I'll continue the route I was going. I won't do a nation through you, but there will be consequences and judgment for what they've done. There's one instance. What about another one? God speaking to Israel through uh, imagery of the pottery and the clay in Jeremiah chapter 18. Then the Lord gave me this message. Listen to what he says. The Lord gave me this message. If I announce that a certain nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted or torn down and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil, evil ways, I will not destroy it as I had planned. This isn't just mincing words here or looking at semantics. It is very clear that God's saying, if I plan to destroy them... But they changed their ways. Does the story stick out in the Old Testament to you? It's a four-chapter book with a big fish and a guy who's a little snotty brat <laughs> by the name of Jonah. Seriously, it's a fun read. It won't take you that long if you haven't read it before. And if you're named Jonah, I'm not saying you're a snotty brat, okay? 
You know what God told Jonah to do? I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them that they're getting ready to be destroyed. It wasn't a salvation message. He's just saying, you need to go warn them because anybody who's getting ready to have this kind of judgment poured out on them needs a warning. And so just go and tell them. Well, here's the funny thing. What does Jonah do? He goes the opposite direction. And then he gets swallowed by a fish. And then he gets spit back out on the shore pretty much where he shipped off from to go to the other place. And he's like, fine, I got it. I'll go. And, but I'm not happy about it. And he goes and he's not happy about it. And he goes, it says like, how many days walk into the city? Because it's a huge city. And, and he says, hey, y'all are going to die. See you later. And I know some of you are like, oh, crap, that was really loud. Um, but that's basically what he does. Read the book. I'm not kidding. He didn't pull any punches. He wasn't merciful. He wasn't saying, if you don't want to die, then you should probably do this. Well, guess what happens? The Holy Spirit shows up on the scene, and God's word of warning through Jonah, even though he was a horrible person to send the message, actually changes the hearts of the people. But Jonah thought he was doing what he was called to do. Nineveh was going to be destroyed by God. He was fine with that. He just didn't want to go tell the people because that might even give them a sliver of a chance. They might change their ways. And so that's why he didn't want to do God's bidding. But he delivered the message as minuscule and minor as he could just to have been obedient to God. Have you ever done that? Oh, fine, God, I'll do it. But I only do it this much. Fine, if that's all you're going to give me, I'll use what you give me, but I can still do something with it. So, but Jonah then walks out onto the hillside outside of the city, and boy, he's, <laughs> he's waiting. <sighs> but see, what he doesn't realize is that after he left, there's a revival going on in Nineveh. And the people are changing their ways, and they're repenting of their sin. And, and as he's waiting and waiting... And waiting, guess what doesn't happen that he proclaimed to them was going to happen because God told him it was going to happen. The destruction in Nineveh never happens. God changes his mind because the people had changed their ways. Anyway, we got time. James 5, buckle up. Are any of you suffering hardships? Let me ask you that now. Are any of you suffering hardships? Yeah. Okay. This message is for you. You should pray. Brandon, I've already done that. Nothing's changing. Do you hear any caveat to that? You should pray. And then in two days, like shaking the bottle, dust will settle and it'll be exactly what you want. That's not what it says. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. How about, how about this? Are any of you happy? Yeah. Woohoo! Right? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick this morning? <laughs> You're like, after the COVID nonsense and all that, I'm afraid to raise my hand because then people look at me like I have the plague, so I'm not even going to admit it. I have a sniffle, but please don't tell anybody. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. But you know who you are. 
Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Yes, we are one of those weird places that keeps the little anointing oils by our altars because we we anoint with oil, not believing that the oil is magic. <laughs> Once we touch you with this oil, you'll be healed. No, we do it as an act of obedience and faith, knowing that the prayer of the faith will heal the sick, which I'm just going to read to you now. Verse 15, such, an offer, such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Huh. We'll get back to that. Verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. That's a tough one because not everybody knows the sins that are in my heart and in my mind. It doesn't say you have to get on a stage like this to do it. That's not what it says. We read into things oftentimes that are not there. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The church should be the safest place to confess your sins. Okay. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and it produces wonderful results. Did you know your prayers? Listen to this. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Well, who's a righteous person? Oh, it's Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, uh, probably Charles Spurgeon, several others I could maybe quote off the top of my head of famous Christians I know, but Who's a righteous person? Well, what is the first five letters in the word righteous? Right. What does right mean? Doing what's right. Do we always do what's right? No. But in Christ, because of the covering of that multitude of sins by the blood of Christ, we are seen by God the Father through Christ and his salvation in our souls. We become righteous because he was first righteous for us. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the... I'm sorry, say, I'll say that one more time. Because some of you know it, you're like, I, I think I, I maybe... He became sin who, know no sin who knew no sin so that we might become the... Of God. Do you catch that? If you are a believer in Christ, you have stepped into the authority of Christ and you have become a righteous person. That doesn't mean that you do everything righteously. But if you are striving and pushing forward and leaning into him, this is where that grace that covers a multitude of sins comes into play. This is where Paul can say, I've not achieved it. I've not perfected, become perfected yet, but Thank God for Christ. Elijah, he goes on to say, was a human just as we are. And yet, when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, guess what? No rain fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. How many of you would love to be in such intimate relationship with God that he hears your prayers, he knows the motives of your heart, and you guys are in such intimate relationship that your prayers are answered just like Elijah's. Verse 19, and this is the one that's controversial often. My dear brothers and sisters, if some of you, someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that Whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. 
Here's the key point. Praying for someone is a kindness that can lead to healing and forgiveness. What do we do with prayer? And how do we pray for others? And it's not just about praying for those that are prayer worthy. What does Jesus tell us to do in the Gospels when somebody's persecuting us? Huh? He says pray for them. Love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Oh, we've got to pray for them too? Yeah. Because your prayers are powerful. What do I pray for them? That they die? Could I do that? I mean, yeah, there's no holds on your prayer, but the reality is if you were living a life of kindness and producing that fruit, you would want to pray for their salvation. You would want to pray that maybe God helps them see the error of their ways so that they can become better than they are now so that they too, in their great fervor for persecution, become great in their fervor for salvation. Prayer brings people together, and it brings people together because the body of Christ in Jesus' day and after Jesus rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and gave them the commission, prayer in the body of Christ was so essential to the element of who they were and what they did together. If you read Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, it says they devoted themselves to four things. One of those things was prayer. Sadly, there are many in the body of Christ today who neglect meeting together, and dare I say, meeting together to pray together. We do okay with studying the apostles' teaching, meaning the Bible. We'll we'll, we'll unpack that. Uh, We do good with the worship and fellowship and breaking of bread together. Boy, do we break bread together. (laughs) But prayer is this redheaded stepchild of the spiritual disciplines. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we're too busy. Maybe it's because we're too distracted. And the enemy, the great distractor, a deceiver, can get us off track so easily, especially in moments of quiet. Can't he? You ever tried to pray? You're like, all right, God, here I am. (laughs) Now I lay me down to sleep, or good Lord, good meat, thanks for the food we eat, or you you get what I'm saying. You're you're starting to pray, and you're you're like, I don't know how to start, but we're getting into it, and here I am. Mm. Oh, my stomach's grumbling. (sighs) Mm. Oh, Lord. Baked potato, yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, Lord, thank you for this day and for chicken nuggets. And and the car needs an oil change. And thank you, God, for blessings and um, blueberry pie and Oh, blueberry pie. You know, I haven't had a good piece of pie. And have you ever experienced it? Or is it just me? And we're like, ah, I'll just give up. But see, we give up a lot quicker than most. 
in other nations because we have a lot more distractions than a lot of other nations do. Went to Guatemala this last week, and it's amazing how joyful the people are. They are just amazing. Don't have two quetzals to rub together. I'm sorry, I try to remember the money system down there. Quetzal is like 7.5 cents in American money, and that's their equivalent of a dollar, okay? And uh, they don't even have that in, in some regards. And smiling, some of them toothless, and they just love life. And we build the equivalence of a glorified shed in our backyard for them, and it's the Taj Mahal. And there are people there you know that have been deeply involved in prayer and the worship of their Lord and rejoice when they're happy and sing songs of praise. And though life has maybe dealt them a hard blow and it looks like their situation is very grim, you realize often when you go to places like that, and I've been to Guatemala three times now, Uganda one time, and you realize how deprived we really are. I, I, I can't go to a place like that and not feel the expression of the people's gratefulness, knowing that every good gift comes from the Father above. And not all people there are believers, but there's a difference in perspective. Prayer, prayer should bring people together rather than distracting us from one another. I've tried on multiple attempts, not just here, but in other churches in the past, to say, we're going to do Tuesday night or Wednesday night as a night of prayer at North Main Street Church of God. I haven't done it in a while. And this isn't a conviction to you any more than it's a conviction to me, but of the some 300 to 400 people that call this their home church, we have maybe 10 on the first night. The next week we have eight. The next week it dwindles maybe to six or four until it's just me or one other person who sees the importance of it. Can I tell you, church, if you know the reason we don't see miraculous things happening within the body of Christ? We don't see the power and authority of God. Can I tell you why? And this is my pure gut level response to what I believe is the problem. We can sing beautiful songs. We can put on this party as a church. We might have great teachers and preachers stand up here expounding on the Word of God that really strikes to the heart of issues and really brings home a point so that you can walk away with a nugget of truth. But when it comes to prayer, which is what changes things, not just you, but things, we doubt, we struggle, we get distracted. Prayer should bring us together, and yet it's one of the few things that most people want to try to avoid. Prayer brings confession and freedom. Again, so confession to freedom is just this. Confession leads to freedom. Freedom from sin. Did you hear, what does James say? Confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be what? Healed. Healed from what? Exactly. Healed from yes. <laughs> Healed from what? 
Yes. Physical healing still occur today. We are a part of the body of Christ that believes that those miraculous gifts did not die off with the first century church. But the irony is we don't see much of that except for this morning over here. You saw a testimony. You heard a testimony. You could say, well, it's because of modern medicine. Yeah, I'm sure it had part to play in it. But who says that God can't use modern medicine to bring healings? Didn't God create the stuff that modern medicines are made out of? And he just gave humans the ability to find the combinations and the right ways to bring healing to the body. A couple of you believe that. Okay, good. But I'm not negating the fact that God can't go, zap, you're healed. Okay? God can use medicine, doctors, nurses, chiropractors, physical therapists, but then he could say, I'm just going to blow your mind. I'm gonna, you're going to go back in to the doctor and that tumor or that thing or that broken bone, it's going to be like it was never there. I've seen it. And I can't, you're talking to one of the world's greatest skeptics. I, I am skeptical about everything. I'm Thomas the doubter, okay? I would be Thomas in the 12. I want to believe, but I won't believe it unless I see it. Or I'm the guy with the sick son who's like, I believe, just help me with my unbelief. God does amazing things when we are willing to pull ourselves out of our own preconceived notions and perspectives and to see the world through the lens that God has. It's there we can learn to be kind and loving and forgiving and all of those things. But it starts with a point of us being willing to say, I've got things that are hindering me. I've got things that are blocking me. I've got things that are holding me back from experiencing everything God has for me. And some of those things are sinful. I've got to break those things. I've got to get rid of those things in my life. I've got to not do those things. And, and, and it's more a matter of not doing those things as it is saying, I'm confessing those things. Can I tell you what happens? I've seen this over and over and over and over again. When someone confesses something publicly, and I'm not, again, not on stage, but just with a group of believers. If someone confesses something publicly, do you know the hold that that thing once had on that individual? Guess what happens to it? Or it at least has lesser control Those things held in secret have more control than those things publicly confessed. This is why confession brings healing to the soul, to the psyche, to the mental and emotional fabric of ourselves. And it brings spiritual healing. And did you know there are enough studies out there in the medical realm that show the type of stress on an individual that hidden, dark secrets hold. And so, yes, it can affect your physical well-being. I remember a professor in college, I'll close, a professor in college, um, friends of ours, actually was a mentor of mine, and his health started tanking significantly. It was really bad. His heart was only pumping at like 30, 40%. He was weak, still a professor. And 
And we thought, oh no, he, he's dying. There's no way he's going to come back from this. I just remember just feeling racked over this. My wife and I were just, we were just, he was one of our buddies too, you know? Did you know within a month it came out he was having an affair? And did you know as soon as that confession happened, what happened to his health? <laughs> Miraculous. <laughs> There are some things humans were never meant to carry. Sin is one of them. Confessing your sins to one another is a form of healing that not only heals the soul, but can also heal the body. Prayer and pursuit of prayer can bring people back to God. Let me just close with this. This is one of those controversial passages. And... um, (laughs) Because this seems to indicate that a person can walk away from the faith. And if you grew up in a more reformed or Calvinistic tradition, you might have been taught that you can't lose your salvation. That we are not a part of that tradition. And it's because of passages like this. And this isn't just the anomaly. There are other passages, even from the lips of Jesus. When you read the parable of the soils, read that sometimes with the blinders off. And you'll see, oh, oh, okay. But this, what does he say? He says, and I'll read it one more time. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings a sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Oh, Brandon, it says sinner. Well, actually, it says bringing them back. They were once a part of, so you can't be brought back to something you were never a part of. Am I correct? They were a part of the community of faith, and not just as Christian in name only. They were a part of the community of faith. And the community of faith was much, I won't say it's much different then than it is now, but it was smaller groups that met in homes, and you couldn't hide out. There was no way that you could be in a small group of believers in one of these small towns, in one of these churches, and not have your life exposed. So this person, James seems to indicate, who was once a part of the body of Christ, living, breathing, moving, working together in tandem as a part of that body, for whatever reason, can sometimes walk away. And they walk away, and what happens? Well, it says if somebody notices the person's gone, or is starting to walk away, or isn't living that life anymore, and they bring them back, What does it say happens to that person? What does it say? You can be sure whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. It could be physical death, but definitely spiritual death. And the forgiveness of sins. It's pretty amazing. We don't believe here that losing your salvation is like losing a set of keys, which happens in our house often. Actually, it's more these things. The phone. Could you ping my phone? I don't know where I've left it. Could you ping my phone? If I had a dime for every phone I've pinged, <laughs> I'd have a buck. No, I'm just kidding. I had more than that. But do you, do you get what I'm saying? Losing your salvation is a complete walking away from the faith. It's not like, oh, I've sneezed wrong and now God's going to condemn me or I've said a bad word here or I've stumbled here or I was rude to that person or losing salvation is a 
I'm heading toward Jesus, my life is his, and saying, mm, no, and you walk away. Okay? That happens. And who are we to say, well, that person was never saved. I've heard that theory go on before, too. Are you kidding? They were producing fruit. They were living the life. There was evidence. And I'm not going to be the judge that they weren't in that. All right, if you want to go that route, I'm just not bold enough to speak that into existence because I saw something different. And then I saw them walk away, and it's heart-wrenching. And you go and you say, wait, wait, can we reason together? Let, let's talk about this. Can you come back? Let's just, don't, don't walk away. Our worship team's going to come forward as we close, and I want to leave you with this. Dr. Helen Roosevelt, who is a missionary to Zaire, told the following story. She says, a mother at our mission station died after giving birth to a premature baby. We tried to emphasize uh, an incubator to keep the baby alive that she had just given birth to, but only the only hot water bottle we had was beyond repair, and so we didn't have any way to keep that baby warm. So we asked the children to pray for the baby and for her sister, and so one of the girls responded, Dear God, please send a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be too late because by then the baby will be dead. And dear Lord, send a doll for the sister so she won't feel lonely. That's all the prayer stated. She goes on to say, and this is a true story, that afternoon a large package arrived from England. The children watched eagerly as we opened this package. Much to their surprise, under some clothing was a hot water bottle, brand new. Immediately, the girl who had prayed so earnestly, she started to dig deeper, saying, if God sent that, I'm sure he also sent a doll for the sister. And she was right. The Heavenly Father knew in advance of that child's request, and five months earlier, he had led ladies' group at this church to include both of those specific items. Oh, Brandon, it's just coincidence. Oh, no. Is it a God moment? What's my challenge to you today? And my challenge to you is to begin to pray, to seek out the Father's heart, to force through the distractions, to present yourself to him in a way that you're saying, Lord, here I am. I want to hear from you, but I also want you to hear from me. But in the midst of my communing with you, speak to me in words that pierce my heart so that I can understand you. And as I study your word, Lord, speak to me there. Show me things about myself and about others and about your grand plan and design that maybe I wouldn't see otherwise. And God, help me to grow closer to you. But the other challenge is this. Pray for somebody else. Here's your application for the week. You're going to feel maybe, and I'm not saying you are, this isn't some mystical, ooh, you're going to feel a nudge. And it's going to be a person by the letter B. <laughs> you know, it could be that way. I don't want to, you know, disparage 
you on that. But you may feel a nudge this week to pray for somebody, to pray over somebody. You may feel God calling you to pay for the person's meal behind you in the drive-thru. And don't tell them who it's from or what church it's from. You just want to give an anonymous blessing and a special form of kindness. I don't know. I, I don't know what that is for you. But as you hear the prompting and you sense the urging of God on your life, step into the obedience of that moment. And then step into the obedience of the next moment. And the next and the next, and the next, and before too long, you might notice you're in this place called the throne room of grace. <laughs> if you want to pray today, our altars are open. We've got one to my right that people will come and pray for you out, or these steps here, you can kneel here. You can come to my left if you want to be left alone. But if God has spoken to you in any way today to really open a part of you that you hadn't experienced or seen before, maybe you should pray. Heavenly Father, we know your word doesn't go forth void, and we know, God, that you are good and holy and righteous, and you desire what's best for us. And, God, what's best for us is you and your calling and will and way. Forgive us where we've faltered, where we've gotten distracted, where we've done things we shouldn't have done. God, give us a sense of hope, encouragement, and a clear sense of direction in where you're leading. Help us to live a life of kindness even when others aren't. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to accomplish kingdom-worthy objectives, even if they're minuscule in our own minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.